Amen. Thank you, Hill Boys. I'd like everybody to be as quiet as possible. You hear that? Without even making a peep, God is doing a mighty thing. Without even making a peep, God is calling people out of self-absorbed lives of sin into His kingdom to worship Him. And that's what's taking place in this building right now with His people. God is calling us. I just thought about as that song was playing and as we were worshiping, the mighty work that God is doing in our hearts like that mustard seed. God is expanding His reign and rule in our hearts and in the hearts of the people in this world. I was thinking that we have people from India. We have people, we have northerners from Jersey and we have southerners, southerners from Virginia and farther south. We have people from all over the place and God is calling us together to believe in specific things, to worship him specifically and to relate in a very specific way so that we show the world what it's like to be children of God. And I'm what a what an honor to be a part of God's kingdom work this very second in your presence. Praise be to God. I see um, that that you all had a good Thanksgiving. So I see some belts are let out a notch, an extra notch. No, I'm teasing. But I I, uh, trust that you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving is a great opportunity to offer praise to God and really just to thank him for his generous goodness to us as um, I don't know about your household, but we were well, well fed by the spirit of God this past Thanksgiving. And I just wanted to before we dive into our text in Matthew 17, I just wanted to uh, take this opportunity to thank God for our Thanksgiving share service that we experienced last Sunday um, to be vulnerable and open, I was a little discouraged during the week that we only had two volunteers uh, that came forward to say, yes, I would like to share what God has done and give thanks for what God has done in my life. Uh, but I am very encouraged in the those two volunteers and the other two that came forward, I think, by God's prompting to share in their hearts. And the thing that I'm very grateful for about that share service was that it was there was nothing superficial about it that people came and shared real life struggles of of the battle that we are in to remove ourselves from the desires of the flesh and to serve the living God. It's, it's a hard thing to do. And we hit obstacles all along the way. And those that shared uh, bore testimony sincere and heartfelt testimony about the struggles in their lives. But did you notice that all four also held up the hope of the gospel at the end? Yes, I was here or I was down or I was struggling, but God. That, those beautiful words, but God. So the, the gospel is growing in hearts. The good news is still, is still good. And I'm grateful to be a part of a body that feels the freedom to share struggles. And yet give glory to God. So praise his name for that. Well, we are in um, Matthew chapter 17. We'll finish the chapter today, but it's been a packed chapter. We spent the first group of verses looking at the Mount of Transfiguration, where the glory of God 
shown through Christ. He took off his um, his servant's robe, if you will, and put on his super cape, man cape, if you will, and showed the glory of God through himself. And then we learn what Jesus means when he looks at his disciples and he says, ye of little faith. And we examine what it means to have little faith, but also we examine what it means to have big faith. So what do the final verses have in store for our edification this morning? Well, let me just introduce the two themes that I think emerge from Matthew chapter 17 by quoting Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin said in 1879, our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanence. But in this world... Nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Not quite in the same way, but those are really the two topics or the themes that emerge in our verses this morning. So let me read Matthew chapter 17. That is the two themes of death and taxes. Let me meet, uh, read Matthew 17 verses 22 and 23, as we look at Jesus predicting his death and his resurrection. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. I want to point out two things for our edification in these scriptures. First, notice in verse 22 that Jesus says to them, the son of man will be delivered. Be given, he'll be delivered into the hands of men. And I want to camp there for a while. And you might be thinking, well, how long can you camp in there? It's pretty straightforward. He's just telling, he's predicting what's going to happen to him. And we all know what happened to him. He was betrayed with that kiss from Judas in the garden. And then he was handed over to the temple guards. And then they handled it, handed him over to the Jewish leaders. And they falsely accused him and handed him over to Pilate. And then Pilate to Herod and Herod back to Pilate. And eventually there he was by the sinful hands of man dying a gruesome death on the cross. So what more is there to say about this passage or these verses? I think there is a lot more to say if we look at them. From a different perspective, I think if we look at these verses and consider them from heaven's perspective, that it can create a great love in our hearts for what the triune God has done on our behalf. They can make us help love God because we discover in this by asking this question, say exactly who does the delivering? Because when you look at these verses, what, what I find is that. There's a differentiation between what man is doing and what God is doing. If you look at the Greek syntax, but also just the context, it's kind of an us and them. And, and the them or the they is man. And what man will do in this passage is they will kill Christ. But who actually does the delivering of Christ? Is it Judas or all of mankind? The, the, the text here hints that the actual delivering process was not done by man. But was done by a different set of hands. None other 
than the hands of God. Now, we know that there are acting agents in this world and that man is an acting agent bringing about God's plan. But also God sovereignly as an acting agent oversees and overrules all of these things. And that he also, from heaven's perspective in this text and others, and we'll look at them, is actually the one that did the delivering. Actually the one that gave Jesus, the Son of God, into the hands of these evil Wicked men. And when you look at it, not from our ordinary perspective, because we think, yeah, Jesus came and 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 we killed him because that's what we do. Right. That's what sinful people do. God creates beautiful, good things and we ruin it. All you got to do is look at the papers today or click the website and look at the news channel today and you will see a cornucopia of examples of how bad we mess God's good things up. And yes, man messed up in this sense. We're used to that. But what we're not used to in considering the death of Christ is is looking at it from heaven's perspective. There was a, a lot going on in this decision and this plan of redemption for the son to even come into this world. So just just imagine with me, if you will. Um, and I know we were familiar with what we experience here on earth, but just imagine with me, if you will, what takes place in heaven for this event. What, what took place in heaven for us to even have the blessing that we have here this morning? For us to be called into the family of God, to, to be participants in what the divine God of all things is doing. How could that possibly take place? Well, some of it is right here in this text. Because what happened in the plan of redemption, you have the triune God, God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit. And they are in this relationship of perfect harmony, perfect peace, absolute unity. Can you think of one relationship in your life that you have ever had where there has never been any kind of tension? No friction at all. I mean, even those we love the most in this world, there's tension. There's friction. And in this relationship in the triune God, there is none of that that what we know about here. I mean, it is so completely fulfilling and satisfying. And in within this trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they, they play different roles in these three persons in one. In, in perfect harmony and, and agreement, the Father plays the fatherly role, if you will, and the Son, and then the Spirit. And they all glorify one another. They're absolutely co-equal in every way. There's no inferiority, but they just take on different roles at different times. It was their agreement. So what we have to realize is that within this beautiful, untainted relationship comes this plan of creation and with it, the plan of redemption, because, of course, the knowledge that man will ruin God's good creation. And within this 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 conference, if you will, the council of one another is this idea that in order to redeem what was lost, One among the Trinity needs to go to this broken world and die. Give himself as a sacrifice. 
We know that. We know that Jesus, Scripture says, Jesus willingly took on that role. I will go as a servant. I will go as the one to take on flesh, though he was without sin. I will make myself vulnerable. I'll lay my powers aside and be God and man concurrently. And I will expose myself to the evils of men. I will do that to redeem mankind. Think about this part. The father's role in all of this. This, Our text is telling us that God delivered his son to his death. Now you have this unbreakable bond of love and unity. And Jesus didn't just say, yeah, I'll go willingly without there being, there has to be agreement. There has to be harmony. In other words, it's not just a going, but the father has to give his son. Can you imagine? I mean, have you ever have had to give your child as a parent over to a situation that you knew was going to be difficult? You have perfect love. And God the Father in the Trinity is saying. I will. Give you to that task. Because Jesus can't make up his mind on his own. Within the, the Godhead. And so in this passage. We, we are treated to the richness. Of this beautiful harmonic relationship. And the decision of God the Father to say, yes, I will deliver you into that. And you would think the most loving thing to do, the most glorifying thing to do, or the best example of love would be as the Father to say, no, son, I will not give you into the hands of wicked men. I will not dare expose you to that. I couldn't bear the suffering and the grief that would come from the loss. And he does it. He he willingly, with the Son and the Spirit, in essence, says yes. That safe relationship, I'll remove you from this perfect, untainted, safe relationship. And I will give you to this world. And I will give you into the hands of defiled, malicious, vile men who will abuse you, who will mock you. Who will accuse you, who will whip you, who will spear you, who will defile you in every way that you have not experienced in heaven. Into the hands of diseased men, knowing what will take place. And I think by looking at redemption from heaven's perspective, because we're so used to looking at it from man's perspective, we see the richness, we see the loss. I mean, Christ didn't just come without a grieving father, so to speak. And we know what it's like as imperfect parents to grieve over loss in our children. Can you imagine what it would be like in a perfect relationship? I mean, we have good fathers in this world and we have good sons, but Christ was the perfect son. And that's what God, God's part was there in this Exchange, And I think we glorify God by by pondering the magnitude of his sacrifice, 
the magnitude of his giving heart. It just takes everything to a new level. And as we contemplate that, as we adore him for that, we exalt him for being the God that he is so generous and sacrificial. It's a profound perspective. And yet, it's interesting that Paul takes the same, the Apostle Paul takes the same concept. It's so heavenly and lofty and we're thinking about the, the, the grief and the loss and the transaction that happened among the Trinity. And he takes it and he brings it back down so that we can apply it into our everyday lives as believers. And he does that in Romans 8 verse 32. Same concepts. How do we apply it? He's going to teach us how do we apply this lofty thought. Where he's telling the Roman believers. He who did not spare his own son. Talking about God. He who did not spare his own son. But gave him up. Delivered him up for us all. That's what we're talking about. What do we do with that? How will he not also along with him. Graciously give us all things. So he takes this lofty theological concept and he brings it right down into our lives. Yes, God delivered Christ the Son into the hands of sinful man. He did it. And the Son went willingly. God did the giving part. And it was the greatest of all Losses. And he did it, I believe, for two reasons. First of all, God the Father made this great sacrifice because restoring the act of redemption, restoring all of or or believing mankind, um, those that have faith in him, restoring them brings him the most joy and glory. So he suffered and he grieved this loss of his son because the result of that sacrifice would even enhance and glorify the ways of heaven and the person of the Trinity uh, to a greater degree and level. And that's one of the reasons that God would be willing to give his son because he makes something that's wonderful and good even better. And Ephesians tells us he does it for his good pleasure. It was for his great joy for God to act in this way, for the Trinity to make these kind of uh, decisions. Because now, in God's mind, as he's grieving the loss, he's also seeing something else. Because he, he doesn't just see the suffering of his son. He doesn't just see his son go into the grave. He sees his son walk out of the grave. But his son doesn't come back up to heaven alone. He brings with him brothers and sisters in Christ. He brings with him a host of family now to fill the heavens of those that are being transformed and in are in the image of Christ. So now you don't just have a trinity. Now you have the trinity and all the joy and satisfaction with all of redeemed humanity that Christ won for his father. And it was for that joy and that pleasure that Christ does that. So that's. Behind it, Ephesians tells us, but there's another reason that Christ, that God, the father would be willing to sacrifice this perfect son. And that's for you. Can't get away from it. He, he's that kind of God. 
He doesn't, though he's, he's perfectly sufficient with and complete within himself. He, he looks outward. He thinks, how can I share this joy? How can I give myself to others? And so the second truth is that he did it for us. So he did it so that our brokenness can be healed. So our incompleteness, the the fragmented body and spirit can be made whole and, and can be unified and can be brought back into harmony with our very purpose for being. He, he gave us his son to love and to adore and to worship and to follow. Back to the heavens to be restored to the father. And God, God, this is just God's plan. And now you know why in Matthew seven, we were treated to this sermon on the mountain. And one of the first things that Jesus says, and we're just not used to hearing this and in our in our uh, churches these days, because we're guilty of being self-focused and materialistic. But one of the first things he says in his sermon is blessed are the poor in spirit. That does this world teach you in any way that being poor in spirit is a good thing? The whole idea is that you, you are more blessed, the poor in spirit you are, is because you are realizing the magnitude of what God has done for you. And you didn't deserve any of it. And when you realize that you're beggarly, that the only thing you can even ask of God is for mercy. And then you realize what he actually gave you. Then the gospel becomes so big in our lives because we realize every day, every blessing, everything we have here together is undeserved. It's just God's gift. Everything that we have waiting for us at home and at work and the lives that God has built for us. It's just a gift. And we don't deserve it. But the more we realize how much we don't deserve it, the more grateful we are for it. It's when we start interfering and getting our gritty hands in and thinking, well, I did half of it. I sanctified myself. I brought myself this way that far to heaven and you're just bringing me the rest of the way. Christ alone brought us into the presence of God. Christ alone restores us. And that's who we exalt in this place. That's why we exist. That's why he's calling us together to be the family of God, to do things in a unique way, to think unique thoughts about God and to do it together for his glory. So he did it for his own good pleasure and he also does it for us. So. Paul's whole point in bringing this up is, I think, and I don't want to put thoughts into his head, but as I think about how Christianity works and I think about Paul's view on and his theology, he knows, he's talking to the Romans, he knows the Christian life is hard. And he knows we love ourselves. And, and perhaps sometimes that life gets so hard whether it's self-imposed or other people or make it difficult for us, like people who drive really slow in front of you in the road when you're in a hurry. Actually, John Razine is gone, but you missed that story in Sunday school. All of these things, they can bear down on us and we can we can get tired and weary and we can start to think, I don't have enough in life. We can be tempted to think and get self-absorbed. You know, God, you're not really doing a very good job. At providing for me. There's things in my life I'd rather, I'd rather not have in my life. 
And there's a lot of things that I really want in my life and you're not giving them to me. And so what Paul wants us to understand as believers, no matter what's going on in our life, no matter what we think we have or don't have, he wants he's just putting this theological truth out there. We have to wrestle with it. We have to chew on it and compare it to our emotions and our feelings and our circumstances. And he is saying when God has given you the pearl of great price, when God has given you that which is most precious to him and he gave it to you. The very thought that God in any way would withhold anything good for us is absolutely absurd. But I think he knows we're going to think that which is absurd. We're going to be tempted to think which that which is absurd. And so he is bringing this beautiful theological heavenly truth down for us to live with, to trust in, to sink our teeth in. God withholds no good thing. He gives everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. If we don't have things, it's for our own good and for his good pleasure. When we do have things, it's for our own good and his good pleasure. He's a good father. He will not leave us uncared for. And so whatever we're thinking, I don't know where we we are this morning and in, in what we have and what we don't have, what we want and what we don't want. But God is not holding back anything from us. He's already given us his greatest treasure. That Christ is going to take us and give us going to take us exactly where we need to be. In this life. And by looking at this one Verse, I think we realize how much God loves us. That's what he was willing to do. Now, I don't want to ruin that heavenly thought, but Christ also in this passage, and we're talking about that. He says to his apostles, and this is the second time in Matthew. I'm going to die. And I'm going to rise from the dead. And so he says it again. The first time you remember, he said, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise from the dead. And Peter said, oh, no, you're not. Not over my, no, from my dead body, you will. Nobody's going to get to you. They got to come through me first. And also, uh, you have one up everybody who has tried to bring you down in any way. You've outdone them. And so I don't think anybody can hold a candle to you. I don't think you're going down, Lord. And the Lord and Jesus, in essence, says, wow, you're worldly. Man, you are looking at this whole thing from a world fleshly perspective. But this time, Peter doesn't put his foot in his mouth. This time, the response, maybe they learned something after the first time. This time, the response is, um, verse 23 says, uh, they deeply grieved after Jesus said that. And that word deeply means they sincerely. No, it means they exceedingly grieved over this statement that Christ Shared with them. So uh, to put words on a scale, like from a scale from one to ten of grief, it's right on up there with like nine and ten. It, it's the kind of news you hear that just makes you sick to your stomach. So that's where that's what they're feeling right now when Jesus says this. That sickness, that grief of of loss. And it's interesting to me and I want to just. 
comment on it for a few minutes. It's interesting to me that they zeroed in on, I'm going to die. And not the rest of the part, the rest of the truth that, but I'm going to come back to life. Now, I do want to give the disciples the benefit of the doubt because resurrection, I mean, what is that? We know death. I mean, that's our world. That's our experience. We, we can relate to death, but who can relate to the resurrection, right? And there were some Jews that didn't even believe in the resurrection back then. It was it's just a mysterious thing that you don't see every day. So to give them the benefit of the doubt. Yes, we're, our tendency is to to hone in on the things that God says to us that we can most relate to. But that can be a big mistake. I think they're making a big mistake, and that can be a big mistake that we can make in our lives because these are equally true statements. I'm going to die, but I'm going to come out of the tomb. Which one are you going to think about and focus on? We have many things in our lives, and there are things that Scripture promises us as God's children. Scripture promises that when you give your life to Christ and you live the life of a disciple, you're going to suffer. It's part of the description of being a child of God. Christ did it. His followers will do it. But it also promises that the suffering that we experience in this world, as big as it seems in our minds is so small compared to the reward that awaits us in heaven that's not even apples and apples. It's like it's not even on the chart to compare. So what, what, what truth are we going to zero in and, and, and live by? Scripture promises us that we're going to die. Everybody dies. It's destined of man to die once and after that to face judgment. But it also says if you are a child of God, you will live forever in a way of joy that you have barely even tasted in this world. The the best, joyful, holiest, purest experience that you have ever had is is just barely a smidgen, a foretaste of what every day, 24-7 eternal life will be like. What truth are we honing our lives to? The gospel, I think, calls us to focus on the light of the promises that we actually aren't real familiar with, but are equally true. Because that's what gives us hope to get through the the things that we experience. It's the truths that we have a hard time experiencing, but they're just as true. And it kind of comes down to, well, what am I going to focus on? Am I going to live in misery because I'm in a time of suffering right now? Or am I going to realize that, you know, this suffering, as painful as it is, it it has a very powerful purpose in my life. It's going to bring me closer to Christ and getting closer to Christ. Closer to that time where I will no longer experience any suffering at all because Christ has overcome it. So in light of Paul's application, we have to choose the degree to which we allow our earthly tribulations to rob us. From the heavenly truth of victory over sin, Satan, and death that Christ has secured for us. And we want to be careful to not let the reality of of hardship and suffering in this life pull us so far away from the promises of God 
that we begin to lose sight of them. Because that's where our anchor should be. Our anchor is where Christ has taken us. This world's going to fade away. So that battle, that, that, that opportunity every day to sink our lives into the promises of Christ to come is to encourage us as disciples to realize God is not holding anything back from us. He has made glorious promises that we can bank on. And that actually enable us to get through this life, not just miserably, painfully, but with joy, exceeding joy. So so take these things to heart, if you will, and think about your life and God's plan of redemption for you through heaven's perspective, through the sacrifice and through the love of God. So we've talked about. The certainty of death. Now we turn to the certainty of taxes, though, once again, not quite in the way that Benjamin Franklin was talking about. So second, earthly tolls and taxes. Let's look at verse 24 to the end. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are exempt. However, so that we do not offend them, go to the sea and throw in a hook and take the first fish that comes up And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for you and me. This passage is packed with kingdom principles and truths. So, Jesus and his disciples are still up north. They're on their way back to Capernaum. He's ministered there many times. And uh, as they come in, um, Peter is interrogated, if you will, from a uh, Jewish person And, you know, we know by now that they're always trying to get Jesus. They're trying to find dirt. And so by asking Peter, does your master, your rabbi pay the two drachma tax? What he's really wanting to know is, look, is he a patriot? Is he a real loyal Jew? Does he care about the temple? Does he support God's ministry? You know, where does your master stand in all this? So he wants to know if... um, how much he really cares about God and, and the things of the temple, if you will, does he to support God's work? The two drachma tax is not a Roman tax. So these aren't the tax collectors um, that are greedy that we're talking about. These are Jewish patriots and they really care about taking care of the temple. And they expect you, if you're a Jew and you're loyal to the customs, to care about taking care of the temple. So this is a good thing in their minds. Now, the Jews, of course, they hated paying taxes to the Romans. We know that. But this is something that they were expected to do because this was God's work on earth. So this tax is really an offering to the Lord. And it's roughly based, by the way, in Exodus 30, 11 through 16, where through Moses, God says that uh, males 20 years and older are every year to bring a half a shekel as uh, an offering for their price of redemption. So that money actually was a way to worship God 
at the temple. It was an offering. However, God said, and when you have that offering, I want it to be specifically used to um, upkeep the temple. That money goes for what's necessary to keep this facility running so that you can continue to worship me and make your sacrifices there. And it can continue to operate. So it's not Caesar's money. It's God's money for the work of the ministry. And it's possible that the Jews were asking this question because they heard Jesus say something in effect, uh, maybe speak what they thought was badly against the temple. Remember, and he said, I'm going to destroy the temple. In three days, I'll rise again. But when you say destroy the temple and Jewish ears hear that, you have just stepped on some toes because it's everything. It's the work of God. It's the ministry of God. It's the worship of God. It's everything that they stand for is right there. So they could have been testing his loyalty in that way. Are you investing in the kingdom or not? You really love God or not? Or are you just freeloading? Are you willing to put your money here in what you say you believe in? Or are you just freeloading? Peter, of course, answers yes. He does pay his tax. And I'm assuming that Peter witnessed him doing that sometime in the past. Now, this whole scene could have ended there. But, you know, Jesus, he's he's uh, he's got his disciples under his wing and he's turning this into a perfect teaching opportunity. It reminds me of Deuteronomy eleven nineteen, when God talks to parents and he says, and if you're a parent, you know this, you shall teach them to your children talking about the commands of God. Talking of them when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, look at life and know my commands well enough so that when things just spontaneously happen in life, you can bring spiritual truth to it. So Jesus brings spiritual truth. He uses it as a teaching opportunity to one of these guys that's going to serve as his leader when he goes back up to his father. His disciples are his children. And as he often does, he, he teaches in the form of a question. And in this teaching, we find that there are two groups of people, and, and I'll unfold it, but we've got to kind of develop it here. There's two groups of people who pay the tax. There's the citizens of heaven, and then there's the citizens of the earth, in his analogy. And they both pay, but they pay for different reasons. One pays out of obligation, and the other pays uh, freely out of a different um, Obligation, And the idea is that in the analogy that there is a king, there are kings of the world and they need money to fuel their kingdom. The United States needs money to keep things going. So does every other nation and country in the world. Kings, leaders, rulers, you have to have that surplus. And so he says, when you think about things on earthly terms, the kings are really getting their money to operate their kingdom from who? Their children. Or their citizens. And Peter says rightly. The citizens not the children. So that's who the taxes are collected from. For the temple as well. The general populace. And in Christ's analogy. The sons are exempt. So if you just simplify that. So God's the king in this analogy. Of course Jesus is the son. Jesus doesn't have to pay that tax. But it gets a little more complicated because in Jesus's mind, in this analogy, he's saying, not only am I a son, but you're a son. The disciples are exempt from that obligation as well. And then what we get into is this whole teaching of Jesus and John the Baptist before him of revealing that among Israel, they're not all real children of God. 
And John the Baptist came and said, you need to repent. Because you're saying I'm a children of God based on my earthly heritage. Abraham's my father. And that's not how the kingdom works. You become a child of God by putting your faith in Christ. By believing in God for your salvation. And so within the people of God, you have those who are actually true children and those who aren't. True children. Romans 9, 6 through 8. Not all Israel is Israel. Is not the children of the flesh. It is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. So all the ceremonies that they participated in were not enough. And then, of course, we know that Jesus comes and he institutes the new covenant. So let's go back even deeper to see what Jesus is unfolding. Why would those that think they're children of God be obligated to pay the taxes and those who are true sons of God not be obligated to pay these taxes? Well, Jesus, now we know in the new covenant, he's actually the temple. And that temple will fade away. In fact, in real life, it wasn't long. I think it was 30 or uh, maybe 40 years after this was spoken. The temple literally was destroyed and there was nothing to give to. There was nothing to support. And the way that you come to God is through Christ. You don't go to the temple if you want to sing to God or worship to God or pray to God. You come through Christ to do these things. And the sons of God come through Christ and they worship him. They invest in Christ. So now it's not place, it's person. And I know all of this is tied up in Jesus's words and Jesus's teaching. So the believers are free from the temple tax. They don't technically have to um, pay it. But then Jesus turns around and says, but I want you to pay it. Even though you're free from that obligation. And the reason is this. For the sake of the gospel, he says, so as not to offend. So you mean you set me free from having to pay this tax, but now you're saying I should pay it freely. He says, so you don't offend. And then you right packed in this little passage, you have this other very important principle that Peter has to know in order to lead the church. And that is that freedoms have Freedoms from Christ have limitations. Even the freedoms from Christ serve a higher purpose. And the higher purpose that is served here is for the lost. God has such a heart for the lost that he says, no, don't don't practice that freedom. Give so you don't offend, because if they don't see you given to the temple, you know how Jews think if they don't see you given to the temple, you just slam the door shut on any hope of reaching their heart. They will just they will totally disregard you. You will have no platform for the gospel. And in Scripture, even Paul develops this more when he's talking about to the Corinthians and to the Romans about the freedoms that Christ has given. And yet there are times when we should practice them and there are times when we shouldn't practice them. And the oh, the principle that trumps the freedom would be. If it is in any way a hindrance to the work of God or the gospel. So in 1 Corinthians 9, 1 through 14, Paul gives a discourse about all his freedoms. I have perfect freedom to eat what the foods and drink the drinks that Christ has made clean. I have perfect freedom to take a, a, a spouse if I want, a wife if I want, like the other apostles. I have perfect freedom to be paid for my work. 
Don't muzzle the ox when he treads. So he's showing all of the freedoms that he has. But he purposely does not always take these freedoms. Why? Verse 12, if others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right because we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. So there are actually times where it's more honoring to God to not use the freedom that Christ won for you when it serves the higher purpose of the gospel. And then Paul even says in Romans, he kind of gives a little jab because he says, if you refuse to stop practicing this freedom, maybe you're enslaved to it and it's not a freedom at all. Maybe it's become an indulgence or addiction. So even among fellow brothers, not just the lost, but fellow brothers in Romans 14, 13. Let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So what we're really free to do is run the path of God's commands, as Psalm 119, uh, 32 says. I run the path of God's commands for he has set my heart free. He sets our hearts free. To do what is most glorifying and honoring to him. So what about today? You know, the temple is gone. What do we invest in today? Well, of course, we continue to invest in Christ. He's a temple. We continue to invest in the ministry and the kingdom that is coming on earth. Anything that supports the work of God is worth Investing in, we are absolutely free. There are no limitations to how we can give to God. If people are being ministered to, so today it's not so much the structure, the structure is a tool, the building is a tool for the ministry to take place. And when the people of God are being ministered to, when God is being exalted and the saints are being edified and the lost are being evangelized, that's the work of the ministry that need, that's very important to God that that keeps going. So we have the honor and the privilege to invest in these kind of things and to worship God, not with our financial crumbs. Did you ever think that maybe our giving or the lack thereof might be an obstacle to the gospel of Christ? As I thought about this passage, I thought if 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 unbelievers are able to see how much I really love God and I'm willing to invest in his kingdom. And if it's not very much, is that an obstacle for that? Why would I want to why would I want to worship your God if that's all you think of? Him? What a privilege we have in this day and age to give our offer our buys as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God as a form of worship. What an opportunity we have. What, what little or if we have a little or a lot to invest in that which will last forever as a way to praise him. And isn't it interesting that God realizes the nuts and bolts of, you know, in order to, to be the people of God, we need a place to meet. And in order to have a place to meet, we got to make decisions to keep it up. Maintenance. That, that poll tax was maintenance money for the temple of God. We need maintenance money to serve the Lord today. It's practical stuff. Now, on behalf of this church, we do our very best to make wise financial decisions. Uh, missions always has a certain amount. I think it's uh, usually between now it's running between 11 and 13 percent 
of the income always goes to missions. Always. And so we don't say to the missions committee, you need to pull all your support for the next four months because we need to put uh, vinyl siding on this church. The giving is taken into consideration because that's the ministry. That's the way the church operates. But we do have maintenance issues. The chairs that you're sitting on have stains on them. And unless the Lord Jesus washes the stains away, eventually we're going to need some new chairs, right? So they don't become a stumbling block to people. And then I have just enough time since I'm already running late to finish the passage where Jesus tells Peter to go fishing. And I just very succinctly. It is a lesson on God's provision. Yes, you're free from the obligation. And yes, I want you to give anyway so as not to offend. And yes, God provides. Just think about the scene. It's bizarre. He tells Peter to go and cast his line into the sea. To grab the fish that's on the end of the hook, look in its mouth, pull out the exact amount that you need to pay your tax and mine and come and let's pay it. Now, just think all that went behind that seemingly simple act. That's how we'll close. That means that somehow, some way, someone had to have dropped a coin in that sea. That exact amount that they needed to pay the tax. Somewhere, somehow, some person had to make sure that a fish was coming along at the exact time. Bites that coin. Doesn't swallow that coin. Or doesn't spit it out realizing that it's not food. Wasn't a worm or whatever. But stays in its mouth. And somewhere someone has to, to divinely design that Peter goes to this specific spot. When that specific fish is coming along, he puts his specific hook in. And that specific fish grabs the hook. Doesn't, still doesn't spit the coin out. Doesn't fall out of its mouth. And he reels it in or pulls it in and he reaches in and there's the coin. I'm like, come on. So I think Peter's probably thinking, my confession that Jesus is Lord was exactly right. Who else could do something like this? And God will provide what we need to bring him the utmost glory so as not to offend. Contemplate the love of God. Worship God in your hearts. What an honor and privilege it is to be a part of what he's doing in this broken world as he mends and puts pieces back together. And may he bless the preaching of his word this morning.